Well, hello, hello, hello. Yes, you've guessed it. It's myself. I'm back again. This, of course, is the news from uh, Archaeology News, from Stone Pages and the British Archaeological Jobs and Resources. Well, you're probably wondering where we have been. And in fact, Diego and uh, Paolo have been going through a bit of a tough patch just now. In fact, they have written quite extensively about what went on. It's actually possibly worth just saying um, that uh, the reason that they've not been online for almost uh, two months now is due to a few, of course, interconnected and complementary things which all happened at once. They decided to move from their home on the, the shores of the lovely Baraggiano and move to Bologna. Uh, up in northern Italy. But of course everything starts to go wrong and there's lots of disruption and both of Diego's parents unexpectedly ended up in hospital so I'm sure you'll realise why he had to spend a bit more time with them. This of course uh, causes disruption, the the family's moving, Uh, Diego's away in Rome, the children are settling into a new school. So uh, as you can imagine... It could only get worse. Well, it did as well because they had no internet connection as well. It's still to be uh, connected as long uh, as well as their phone lines. Uh, in any case, what they're planning to do is uh, work with that so that there's no uh, further interruptions if things like this happen again. And yes, that's life. Diego's hoping that this little glimpse into what happened with them well, hopefully I'll allow you to understand why uh, there had been no news since, uh, well, September. And he hopes that you will have patience and understanding. Well, I certainly do, and I'm sure that I'm going to be speaking for all of us, that I'm glad that Diego's parents are back on the mend, that uh, the family has now moved into their lovely house in Bologna, and things are hopefully looking up. So on behalf of myself... And all the listeners and readers of the Archaeology News, we are wishing you all the best. Well, that was exciting. Um, Let's hope it doesn't happen again. Let's get on with the news. And so what have we got for you? Well, we have got linguists reconstructing the sounds of a prehistoric language. The fabulous Pi language sounds tasty. We've got excavations at the capital of a Bronze Age Canaanite kingdom and ancient Chinese. Turns out they actually started writing with brushes. Jersey, was this the home of the last Neanderthals across in the west? And down in uh, north... uh, I'll try again, can't get my geography right. Down in southwest England in Cornwall, we've got archaeologists preparing to restore a collapsed dolmen. This one has been a fascinating one. It was uh, from Georgia, and a new skull that's been found in the Demancy Gorge is actually starting to cause real concerns about our ideas of multiple human species. It turns out that the Denisovans may have occupied Australia, which has got also more far-reaching implications. And we return uh, to the Middle East, where Bronze Age obsidian sources are giving us an idea of that economy. Turns out that frog's legs, <coughs> or should that be toad's legs, was an English delicacy from around 8000 BCE. And finally, we end up with women leaving their handprints on 
ancient cave art. How many people previously thought it was, you know, the, the male cave art as well? Stick around to the end and hear the full story. So let's get on with the news. Well, what did our ancestors sound like back in 5000 BCE? In a recent online article for Archaeology magazine, University of Kentucky linguistics lecturer Dr. Andrew Bird can be heard reading two fables constructed in the language known as Proto-Indo-European, or Pi. I highly commend this, by the way. It's brilliant fun to listen to and has actually become one of my favourite little bedtime stories. Pi is the prehistoric ancestor of hundreds of languages, including Old English, Latin, Greek, Sanskrit, Farsi and Armenian. The language is typically thought to have been used around about 7,000 years ago, though some suspect it was spoken at an even earlier point in time. According to certain archaeologists and the majority of linguists like Bird, people who spoke Pi were located just to the north of the Black Sea and were likely to have been the people to have first tamed horses, perhaps even invented the wheel. The primary focus of Bird's work is to understand how this language would have sounded when it was spoken millennia ago. Bird says this is all beginning... Uh, begun by looking at similarities with other languages. So this is employing a technique called comparative method. Here, Bird starts by gathering words from related languages and then finds the common thread amongst them. By examining trends in each language, one can tell which part of the word has changed over time and get an idea of what the original Pi might have sounded like. Bird next plans to author a book addressing the entire Indo-European phonology. The 2013 excavations at Tel Kabri in the Western Galilee region of modern Israel included the discovery of a complex composed of several rooms adjacent to the palace and an additional large hall and rooms belonging to the palace itself, creating a 75-metre-long continuum of uninterrupted monumental architecture. Sounds impressive. The projected extent of the palace may have been up to 6,000 square metres. The excavations aimed to locate the western edge of the palace, instead encountering the remains of the palatial storage area, with the remains of nearly 40 large Canaanite storage jars, along with other vessels, including the smaller storage jar with two handles, goblets, or otherwise known as cabaret cups, and parts of a jug, as well as a small dipper jug. This is the largest concentration of restorable pottery uh, ever found anywhere in the Palace of Cabri, and the only entire room still full of artefacts. It's also the first time that such a storeroom with jars still present has been uncovered within a Middle Bronze Age palace in Canaan. And residue analysis as well as pottery provenance studies are planned. It's hoped these results should provide insights into Canaanite palatial economy during the early to mid-2nd century BCE. The discovery in Henan province of 3,000-year-old oracle bones and oracle bone script at Jinju, the last capital of China's Shang dynasty, resulted in the identification of China's earliest known writing. Tang Jinzhen, head of the Anyang station of the Institute of Archaeology at the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, says that certain characters in the oracle bone script indicate that people in the late Shang mainly used brush pens to write. Some characters on the oracle bones were even written by brush and not carved, Tang adds. 
I thought that's maybe how he knew they were using brushes. Anyway, sharp carving tools were once believed to be the earliest writing instruments in China. But not only on the oracle bones, but traces of brush-written characters have also been found on bronzes, jade and ceramics discovered at Yunju. For example, the characters for good and trip both have a round shape, which can actually only be written with a brush pen. There's so much evidence to prove that people in late Shang most commonly use brush pens to write, but brush-written characters are very hard to preserve, so only oracle bone script has been preserved until today, and remittance remains the only written record confirming the existence of the Shang dynasty. Now, a study on a site in the Channel Islands of Jersey, British Crown Dependency just off the coast of France, revealed a significant piece of late Neanderthal history. Scientists working on an archaeological dig in St. Berlade said teeth found at La Cotte site suggests Jersey was in fact one of the last places Neanderthals lived. The site, which has produced more Neanderthal stone tools than the rest of the British Isles put together, consists contains sorry the only known late Neanderthal remains from northwest Europe. Dr. Matt Pope of the Institute of Archaeology at University College London, who helped lead the research, says in terms of the volume of sediment, archaeological richness and depth of time, there is nothing else quite like it in the British Isles. Dr. Pope said the results showed that part of the sequence of sediments dates between 100,000 to 47,000 years ago, indicating that Neanderthal teeth, which were discovered at the site in the 1910s, were younger than previously thought, and probably belonged to one of the very last Neanderthals to live in that region. The discovery that these deposits still exist and can be related to previously unexcavated deposit opens up a massive range of exciting possibilities. Dr. Martin Bates from University of Trinity St. David's is saying, who's actually leading the current fieldwork at the site, is saying that they're hoping to be able to link their site with the broader Neanderthal landscape through study of similarly aged deposits around the island and through bathymetric study on the seabed. They're hoping that from the outset these deposits held some archaeological potential, but the dates have indicated they've uncovered something exceptional. They have a sequence of deposits in this cave which span the last 120,000 years. Crucially, this covers the period in which Neanderthal populations apparently went extinct. The team, I'm sure you were wondering this, dated the sediments using a uh, technique called optically stimulated luminescence, which measures the last time that sand grains were exposed to sunlight. I have to say it was, uh, it was uh, interesting myself. We, we used uh, OSL, optically stimulated luminescence, at a site I was working on this summer, uh, an Iron Age site, and it was very interesting to actually have it explained to me how OSL works. I'm not going to do that to you just now. That would be unfair. But uh, if you just do a quick Google, Google is your friend, optically stimulate the luminescence and learn about this exciting new dating technique. Well, archaeologists are f- to finally start work on reconstructing the giant's coit, a portal dolmen built 5,000 years ago during the Neolithic uh, down at Cranbourne in Cornwall, England. This is following three years of fundraising 
which is allowing them to excavate and restore the site of uh, which is actually a scheduled ancient monument. The 5,000-year-old ruined Neolithic monument was sitting in a beautiful landscape, part of an old estate, which unfortunately has now lost its manor house. And currently the coit stones are spread around the site itself. Um, but uh, as I speak, the first orthostat or support stone has already been raised. That happened on the 31st of October and restoration of the second and third orthostats will be in the spring with a capstone being placed on top as near to Midsummer's Day as it can uh, in 2014. Volunteers have also pledged to carry on the work after taking part in the first phase of archaeological investigations last year. A film depicting the site's history and archaeological significance is being made and a bilingual ballad is also being commissioned along with the creation of a special app to help guide visitors around the site. Several exhibitions and talks will be held along with education days for schools once the work has all been completed. So if you want to learn more about that, you can visit the giantscoit.org for more information. That's giantscoit.org. This is exactly the sort of project I love, which is actually using archaeology, not just as a sort of a noodling exercise, but for uh, the people who actually live in the area and people who are coming into the area to engage, what a terrible word, engage with the site in a variety of ways. I can't wait to hear this bilingual ballad. However, we've also got now some very, very big news. It, it sounds small, but in fact, the more you think about it, it's it, it's uh, huge. I, I don't know if you've heard about this yet. If you haven't, you are about to. Paleoanthropologists from the University of Zurich have uncovered the intact skull of an early homo individual in Demansi in Georgia. Now, this find is forcing a change in the perspective in the field of paleoanthropology. Human species diversity two million years ago was much, much smaller than has been presumed so far. However, diversity within Homo erectus, the first global species of uh, human, was as great as it is in humans today. The skull, which was found, has the largest face and the most massively built jaw and teeth and the smallest brain size within the Mansi group. It's actually the fifth skull to be discovered at the site. Previously, four equally well-preserved hominid skulls, as well as some skeletal parts, have been found there. Taken as a whole, the finds show that the first representatives of the genus Homo began to expand from Africa through Eurasia as far back as 1.85 million years ago. Because the skull is completely intact, it can provide answers to various questions, which up until now has allowed for a large amount of speculation. According to Christoph Zolif. Zoli Kofer, anthropologist at the University of Zurich. The reason why Skull 5 is so important is that it unites features that had been previously used as an argument for defining different African species. Yes, you heard right. In other words, had the brain case and the face of the Mansi sample been found as a separate fossil elsewhere, they would probably have been attributed to two different species. Marcia Ponce de Lelan, who is also an anthropologist at the University of Zurich, adds it's also decisive that we've got five well-preserved individuals in Demancy who we know had to live in the same place at the same time. 
These unique circumstances of the find make it possible to compare variation in demancy with variation in modern humans and chimpanzee populations. Zolikofer summarizes the results of the statistical analysis as follows. Firstly, the Demancy individuals all belong to a population of a single early Homo species. Secondly, the five Demancy individuals are conspicuously different from each other, but not more different than any five modern human individuals or any five chimpanzee individuals from any given population. The present findings are supported by an additional study recently published in the PNAS journal. In that study, the researchers show that differences in jaw morphology between the Demancy individuals are mostly due to differences in dental wear. This shows the need for a massive change in perspective. The African fossils from around 1.8 million years ago likely represent representatives from one of the same species, best described as Homo erectus. This would suggest that Homo erectus evolved about 2 million years ago in Africa and soon expanded through through Eurasia via places such as Demancy as far as China and Java where it's first documented from about 1.2 million years ago. Other paleoanthropologists, however, believe that at least three distinct species of humans coexisted in Africa. Uh, they include Fred Spoor, who's not one of the species. Um, he is from University College London. He said that the methods of analysis that the team used were not sufficient to infer that these fossils were the same species. Comparing diversity patterns in Africa, Eurasia and East, uh, and East Asia provides clues on the population biology of the first global human species. But... No matter what people are saying, it looks like we're going to lose a large number of these prehistoric species. And in fact, simplifying the whole process down. There's been another debate about this, about how researchers are in a way forced into uh, ever grander claims about, you know, they have found X number of species uh, just to keep their universities happy. Well, there's a debate to be had. Now, it's a, a quick story which I, I, I completely forgot to tell you about as well. It's about Neanderthals roaming with elk and bison east of Berlin. That's back before it was actually a, a really nice place to go. Fossils and flint tools found in a coal mine prove that Neanderthals roamed the region east of Berlin during the last but one ice age. The Brandenburg state government said the finds date back 130,000 years and they are the oldest evidence of human existence in the region. Archaeologists unearthed tools, including a scraper for removing flesh from an animal's skin and a stone for shaping tools and weapons. 20 metres below the surface, they also found the remains of wolf, horse, elk and bison. Fossils show that the surrounding habitat was a shallow, watery dell, what a lovely name, with buckthorn, birch trees, herbs and grasses. The climate was very similar to northern Scandinavia today, mild enough to allow Neanderthals to migrate there, at least during the summer months. Makes it sound like a fabulous place for a holiday there. Now, uh, this one's actually quite amusing after the, the last but one story, uh, when we talk about actually getting rid of species. But anyway, let's press on. Let's just pretend that one didn't happen. 
It's all about the Denisovans. Yes, scientists have proposed that the most recently discovered ancient human relative, the Denisovans, somehow managed to cross one of the world's most prominent marine barriers in Indonesia and later interbred with modern humans, moving through the same area on the way to Australia and New Guinea. Three years ago, the genetic analysis of a small finger bone from Denisova Cave in the Altai Mountains in northern Asia led to a complete genome sequence of a new line of the human family tree, the Denisovans. Since then, genetic evidence pointing to their hybridization with modern human populations has now been detected, but only in indigenous populations in Australia, New Guinea and surrounding areas. In contrast, Denisovan DNA appears to be absent, or at very, very low levels, in current populations on mainland Asia, even though this is where the fossil was originally found. Well, scientist Professor Alan Cooper of the University of Adelaide in Australia and Professor Chris Stringer of the Natural History Museum in the UK say that this pattern can be explained if the Denisovans had succeeded in crossing the famous Wallace Line, one of the lar- their largest and the world's most amazing biogeographic barriers, which is formed by a powerful marine current along the east coast of Borneo. Wallace's line marks a division between European and Asian mammals to the west and marsupial-dominated Australasia to the east. The recent discovery of another enigmatic ancient human species, Homo floriensis, uh, in Flores in Indonesia, confirms that the diversity of archaic human relatives in this area was much higher than previously thought. Knowing that the Denisovans spread beyond this significant sea barrier opens up all sorts of questions about their behaviours and capabilities and how exactly they were able to do this. Because what you have to remember is... This barrier is very is a very deep trench, harsh currents, and so you actually have to cross this by some form of um, seafaring craft, whether it's paddling across on a raft uh, or whatever. You cannot, as we see from the other uh, animal species, just sort of swim across this barrier. Now, an archaeologist at the University of Sheffield has found evidence that, contrary to widely held theory, Bronze Age Syrians made their stone tools locally instead of importing them finished from Turkey. The discovery has implications for our understanding of how early cities developed in these regions and how the geographic origins of raw materials affected developing states. During the early Bronze Age, around 5,300 to 3,100 years ago, blades made of chert and obsidian remained important despite the advent of metal tools. That's an important fact to remember there. Much sharper than bronze tools, the stone blades were used for a variety of purposes. Now, Dr. Ellery Fram from the University Department of Archaeology explained there is a prevalent idea that the blades were not made locally in northern Mesopotamia, what is now called Syria. It had been widely claimed that the blades were made in specialised workshops in southeast Turkey and then exported ready-made to villages and early cities throughout what is now Turkey, Syria and Iraq. However, Dr. Fram studied the origins of obsidian tools from various archaeological sites, including Tel Mozan, where he himself excavated, and showed that their raw materials originated from a variety of geological sources across Turkey, not merely 
those nearest to the proposed workshop sites. The diverse obsidian origins, when combined with stone tool debris from the actual sites themselves, suggest local production. Rather than arriving at the cities as finished blades, obsidian instead arrived as cores or preforms which were brought by visitors either from diverse regions or with diverse itineraries. Instead of distant industrial manufacturing, the materials for the blades reached the hands of the city specialists involved in household production, principally for the local market. It was the raw material, not the tool, that arrived. Now, nearly Stonehenge fluff story of the week. Archaeologists digging about a mile away from Stonehenge, yay, Stonehenge, have made a discovery that appears to overturn centuries of received wisdom. Frog's legs... <sighs> sigh. You'll, you'll hear why I'm sighing in a minute. Frog's legs were an English delicacy around eight millennia before becoming a French one. The revelation was made uh, by a team who had been digging at a site known as Blick Mead near Amesbury in Wiltshire. Team leader David Jack said, We were completely taken aback. In April, they discovered charred bones of a small animal, and following assessment by the Natural History Museum, it has been confirmed that there is evidence the toad bones were cooked and eaten. Yes, you heard right. Although everyone's going on about the frog's legs, in fact, they're toads. Anyway, they would definitely have been eating the legs because they would have been quite big and juicy. The bones from a Mesolithic site that Jack is confident will prove to be the oldest continuous settlement in the UK have been dated to between 7,596 BCE and 6,250 BCE. And it's not just toad's legs. Mesolithic Wiltshire men and women were enjoying an attractive diet, including huge chunks of auroch, Cows three times the normal size of a normal cow. Um, it makes you think about uh, huge burgers there. They've also got wild boar and red deer and hazelnuts. Yum, these Mesolithic peoples love their hazelnuts. They were really rich food resources for these people. They were eating anything that moved. But uh, Jacques was not expecting toad's legs for starters. Jacques is a senior research fellow in archaeology at the University of Buckingham, which is funding a new dig on the site. He said it was looking increasingly like that the site was the cradle of Stonehenge, which was built 5,000 years later. Andy Rintut, chairman of the Amesbury Museum and Heritage Trust, said no one would have built Stonehenge without there being something unique and special about the area. There must have been something really significant here beforehand, and Blick Mead, with its constant temperature spring, may well have been that. You have that. I have a memory in my head of uh, a sketch where it's um, yes, Stonehenge. It's a bit ah. Anyway, we move on to the last story, and it's all about handprints on cave walls. An anthropologist has determined the sex of some of the people who left their handprints on ancient rocks and cave walls, finding that the majority of them were women. The assumption has been before that the handprints, whether stencils, paint blown around the hand or actual paint-dip prints, were produced by men because other images on cave walls were hunting scenes. The smaller handprints were assumed to be adolescent boys getting into this sort of... Um, Macho, 
culture. Well, Dean Snow, Emeritus Professor of Anthropology, came across the work of John Manning, who was a British biologist who, 10 years ago, tried to use the relationships of various hand measurements to determine not only sex, but such things as sexual preference and susceptibility to heart disease. Now, Snow wondered if he could apply this method to the handprints left in cave sites in France and Spain. Manning probably went way beyond what the data itself could infer, but the basic observation that men and women have differing finger ratios was interesting. Well, so thought Snow. He thought that there was a neat little one-off scientific problem that could be solved by the application of a bit of archaeological science as well. Snow visited a number of caves and the few existing images with size indications. He also collected hand images from people with European and Mediterranean ancestry. He found he needed a two-step process for the modern hands to successfully differentiate men from women. He first measured the overall size of the hand. I hope you're actually doing what I'm doing just now and looking at the hand and and, and attempting to measure this. So bear with me. He first measured the overall size of the hand using five different measurements. This separated the adult male hand from the rest. Snow then found that step one was 79% successful in determining sex, but adolescent males were classified as female. So step two compared the ratio of the index finger to the ring finger and the index finger to the pinky to distinguish between adolescent males and females. For the known hands, the success rate, though statistically significant, was only 60%. There's just too much overlap between males and females in modern populations. He thought the fact that they had so much overlap in the modern world would make it impossible to determine the sex of the ancient handprints. But old hands all fall at or beyond the extremes of the modern population. Sexual dimorphism was greater then than it is now. Sexual dimorphism implies that males and females differ. Not only were male hands larger, Snow found development of the fingers how long they are relative to each other, also differed significantly. The first step in the process showed that only 10% of the handprints on cave walls in Spain and France were left by adult males. The second step indicates that 15% were placed by adolescent males, leaving 75% of the handprints done by women. By just eyeballing, I'm more accurate with the modern hands than with the formulas he developed, says Snow. There's some variables there that uh, he's not aware of yet, but the algorithms are pretty good. So on that good news story, um, can I remind you that, of course, you can now keep up with uh, Archaeology News. Good to have you back, Diego, at uh, Stone Pages. And you can keep up with the fabulous news. Beautifully edited by Maggie at Pastor Risons at www.pastorisonspr.com. And you can keep up with myself, yes, at Badger, B-A-G-R.org. You can always try visiting us on Facebook as well. Remember that more can be found at Stone Pages. That's news.stonepages.com. And I'd like to th- thank you for listening to this beautiful and returned version of Archaeology News. Let's hope you come back to us again next week. Mm-hmm.